Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams discusses needle exchange programs. Terrence Keeley details the trouble with Scientocracy. Ted Galen Carpenter evaluates the long-standing contradictions in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And Michael Tanner lays out how California tackles or fails to tackle poverty. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. I'm talking with Jay Schweikert uh, here at the Cato Institute about a a case uh, relating to what juries are allowed to know. The case is Michigan v. Wood. It is uh, now before the Michigan Supreme Court. So uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this case, uh, Jay, what do juries understand their role to be and what is their role? Those are are great questions because there are very different answers to those questions. Juries are told very little about their proper role in our criminal justice system. Uh, There is essentially a myth that has been developed and propagated by judges and prosecutors that the sole function of juries is basically a fact-finding body, that they're there to say, determine who's lying, who's not, was that light red, was it green, Um, and that they're kind of this black box that determines disputed facts and then automatically mechanically renders a verdict. That is the modern conception of juries, uh, and that is generally what they are told to do. Um, Whereas the actual historical role of juries, not just in the American legal system, but really in the Anglo-Saxon legal system going back to before Magna Carta, is that juries, at least as importantly, serve an injustice-preventing role. That they really are, in some ways, a political body there, not just to decide facts, but to act as a check against aggressive state power uh, with the inherent authority to uh, return acquittals in the case of manifestly unjust prosecutions. And it's really interesting that uh, the modern conception of the jury is that these people are supposed to be merely finders of fact uh, and then render a verdict based on the facts that they have found irrelevant of what how a person might be sentenced, ir- irrelevant uh, to whether or not they think that person fundamentally did something wrong in a, in a moral way. And, and indeed, juries actually, in almost all cases, cannot even be told what the sentence will be. Because if you adopt this sort of very black box mechanical fact-finding role, it, you know you might say, well, it doesn't matter. All they're there is to decide the disputed facts, and then the judge will do the sentencing. But it's quite common for juries to return convictions in cases, not knowing what the sentence is going to be. And then afterwards, when they're told, you know, oh, this person who was selling some drugs, maybe you thought they were going away for a year or two, there's actually, you know, a 10 year mandatory minimum. So they're going to miss their kid's childhood. And they're horrified. And they'll say, I never would have voted to convict if I'd known what was going to happen to this person. So in fact, keeping juries in the dark about the consequences of their actions is in some ways a key component of keeping the machinery of criminal justice running smoothly from the prosecution's perspective. And it it raises the issue, um, if juries are supposed to be merely fact-finding bodies that then render a verdict, why aren't we just hiring people who are really good at that to serve on juries? Like why why 12 random uh, eligible voters are selected to to serve on this jury if if their purpose is just to find facts. 
it it's it seems to go against what you would expect a jury's purpose to be. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think that the, the whole idea of having a jury of your peers drawn from your community is in part, I think, intended to be so that they will have some stake in what happens in this in this case, that the jury really is there to act as the conscience of the community, the voice of the community, uh, and to you know basically say to the government, before you impose the most serious sanctions you can dish out, you have to account yourself to members of the public and convince them, a supermajority of them, that uh, this is acceptable. Um, so, you know, it's we haven't. So I agree. The fact that, you know, we have still we, we still have largely random jury selection uh, doesn't make as much sense if you buy fully into the mechanical fact finding role. It really, you know, that's a vestige of the idea that juries are supposed to be the people's voice in the judiciary. With respect to acquittal or what's known as nullification, where some number of uh, the jurors decide, well, this guy is guilty. Uh, he violated the law in this particular way. We don't dispute the facts, but we don't feel that this was uh, a bad action. Um, jurors believe, in, in your view, wrongly, that uh, that doesn't matter. I think that's right. Yeah, most. I mean, to the extent that the subject of so-called jury nullification ever comes up, uh, judges will discourage it quite quite harshly and tell juries often that it would be a violation of your oath to apply the law in any way other than the way that I, as I tell you. Nevertheless, um, even though juries are discouraged from this practice, uh, it is still a protected practice. Like every court would agree that juries have the power to engage in. Uh, to, to issue conscience verdicts, to issue acquittals, uh, even uh, in the teeth of the facts. Uh, and indeed, those acquittals can't be overturned. They can't be challenged. Juries can't be punished for them. So it's this kind of weird nebulous area of our law where there's this power that's, you know, you can't talk about it uh, in front of juries, but if they do engage in it, it is still protected. Uh, it's the only area of law I know where if you were to accurately read uh, like Supreme Court or, or Circuit Court precedent to a jury on this area of law, it would be grounds for a mistrial. Like if, if I, as a defense attorney, were to read to a jury, here's what you know the Fourth Circuit says about the law of jury nullification, that would inform them that they had this power and it couldn't be questioned, and that would be grounds for a mistrial, which is kind of insane that accurately informing juries as to the law could somehow be a problem. But that's the sort of weird twilight zone that we're in because we've sort of abandoned the original role of the jury. So Keith Wood uh, was on a public sidewalk in Big Rapids, Michigan, distributing pamphlets by the longstanding uh, liberty-friendly group, the Fully Informed Jury Association, or FIJA. Um, it, there's nothing wrong with what's in these pamphlets. It's accurate information uh, with respect to uh, the role of juries historically. And um, so where does he find himself now? He finds himself uh, facing criminal prosecution for in, or having or rather having having been criminally uh, convicted for engaging in quintessential uh, free speech. I think this is an interesting case because it really is the intersection of free speech and jury independence. So what what was the charge? The charge was jury tampering. Um, and Michigan has an extraordinarily broad statute on the subject of what they consider to be jury tampering that says that a person who willfully attempts to influence the decision of a juror in any case by argument or persuasion, 
other than as part of the proceedings in open court, is guilty of a misdemeanor, punishable by up to a year in prison uh, or a fine of $1,000. So there are several red flags there. There are a lot of red flags there. <laughs> For instance, one of the most obvious ones is that this is not this statute on its own is not even limited to uh, in-person, face-to-face communications with a jury. You could buy a radio ad. Exactly. Uh, and it just, I mean, this is not a hypothetical. You may, some of you may be familiar with the uh, case of Scott Warren, who was the activist uh, charged with, quote-unquote, harboring illegal immigrants uh, by leaving water for them in the desert, who was then prosecuted and was clearly factually guilty of this uh, offense. And in the run-up to his trial, there was a lot of public commentary on the obvious injustice of prosecuting this man for caring for desperate people. Uh, And some of these people wrote op-eds. I'm quoting from one here that said, it'll be up to a jury again to decide whether to convict and imprison a man who acted not out of a profit motive, but out of a Christian motive. Um, That was uh, a piece that ran in the Arizona Republic shortly before his trial. Um, Was that person arguably intending to influence members of a jury? I I think so. Most people who speak intend their speech to have effect. Uh, And indeed, uh, Scott Warren's jury did acquit him. And I think they clearly engaged in what what could be called jury nullification or issuing a conscience verdict. So under this sort of broad so-called jury tampering statute, I don't see how that person isn't uh, liable uh, or at risk of prosecution because they were intending to influence a jury with their speech on a public case. And uh, but I would I would maybe quibble a little bit with that as well. Uh, providing factual information to a jury, remaining unaware of what jury on which they are actually serving, um, is are you attempting to influence a verdict in that case, or are you just? educating people about what their powers are when they sit on a jury. Sure. So that that does that gets at some of the more uh, complicated factual wrinkles of this case, because in the state says that Mr. Wood was trying to influence member uh, p- uh, potential members of a jury in an upcoming scheduled case here, People versus Yoder. Um, And and Mr. Wood does uh, acknowledge that he was aware of the Yoder case, that he had uh, attended a a previous uh, proceeding on that as an interested citizen. Um, So the state's argument is that, look, we're not saying you can't make these arguments. We're saying that you were trying to make these arguments to influence an outcome in a particular case. Now, there are two points in response to that. One is that even if that is true... None of Mr. Wood's speech is about was about this case, right? It wasn't like he was grabbing juries and saying, "Hey, you know, you should know this Yoder guy is actually a good guy. Uh, don't convict him." Um, he was just he was, as you say, just distributing general informational pamphlets. So the actual whatever his motive was, his actual speech is general educational speech about the role of juries. And it's also important to note that a jury hadn't actually been sworn yet in this case. It was uh, it happened to be the only one that was basically on the docket for that day. But there was no jury for this case that the um, state says he was trying to influence. So one of Mr. Wood's main arguments is actually a statutory argument that uh, a juror under the meaning of the statute has to be an actual sworn juror. So because there was no jury in this case, he couldn't possibly have violated this statute. Um, so that's the statutory argument. But then, of course, there also is the constitutional argument that even if you interpret the statute uh, the way the, the government wants, 
it would still violate uh, Mr. Wood's free speech rights to convict him for passing out pamphlets uh, about the role of juries. So uh, let's dig down on some of the so there's some of the game theory here related to jury nullification. Let's say everyone in America, every eligible voter in America, wakes up tomorrow uh, fully aware and feels empowered to act on their powers as jurors. And um, how does that change the calculus for charging crimes? How does that change the calculus for uh, defendants to decide to go to trial versus taking a plea deal? Massively on both counts. Um, because in that world where juries were accurately informed about their power to reject unjust prosecutions, the government would know that it was going to have to account to members of the public to, justif to, to, uh, to justify, in essence, not just that the, the conduct at issue was uh, actually um, wrongful, but also that the sentence is proportionate. Because um, I think that there, there are plenty of cases where um, you know, there's, there's conduct that's not necessarily completely acceptable. It might You could arguably call it wrongful conduct. But any com person exercising common sense might expect, you know, a year at most of punishment when in fact with mandatory minimums you have, you could have several decades, right? So, so there's also, there's not, it's, it's not just a question of uh, rejecting prosecutions for people who did nothing wrong, but also rejecting prosecutions where there's a massive, go uh, there's no proportionality. Um, and I think it would have a huge impact. Um, and we've spoken, this is anecdotal, but I mean, we've spoken to dozens of defense attorneys and basically asked them, you know, just if you knew with certainty that at your option, you could tell the jury what the consequence was of a conviction was going to be. That's it. Just that very limited information. Would that change the calculus and whether you go to trial? And everyone says, yes, definitely it would. Um, because there is such a huge gulf between what prosecutors are routinely asking for and what members of the public are prepared to accept as legitimate. So if prosecutors knew that, they would have to make much more reasonable, limited charging decisions. They would have to make much more uh, generous plea offers if they wanted people to continue accepting guilty pleas. Uh, and it really would give people uh, hope, right? Hope that they could make their case publicly, that they could have their, they could truly have their day in court, not just quibbling over you know, minor facts, but quibbling over the fundamental legitimacy of that prosecution. Um, and I think it would, you know, I think it would work a revolution in the way we do criminal prosecutions. So how do, what happens this case going forward? Um, uh, we don't know how it's going to turn out, but um, what, what are the potential uh, avenues that this, this case might take? Sure. So this case is going to be argued before the Michigan Supreme Court uh, sometime next month. Uh, we don't have exact argument dates. in March. In, so, yes, sometime in March of this 2020. <laughs> um, yes. And um, uh, there are a few things that there are a few avenues the court has. Um, our most preferred outcome, of course, would be for the court to rule on constitutional grounds and hold that uh, Mr. Wood's conduct here was protected by the First Amendment, that the state has no legitimate interest, much less a compelling interest in shutting down speech, uh, informing potential juries, potential members of a jury about the role of uh, jury independence. Um, there is a more limited way that the court could rule in Mr. Wood's favor, and that would be to rule on the statutory grounds um, to say, you know, look, there are some complicated, difficult constitutional questions at issue here. 
Um, so we're going to, the court could apply what's sometimes known as the constitutional avoidance canon, where if there is a statute that if read one way would raise serious constitutional problems, but it can plausibly be read another way, they will read it the way that doesn't raise those problems. Um, so they could read it, the statute to say, uh, you know, look, there wasn't an actual jury in this case and juror in the, in this statute has to mean an actual sworn juror. So he didn't violate the statute. And that actually is what one of the judges in the appellate court said. Um, the appellate court split 2-1 on this with the, one of those judges saying, the way I read the statute, he didn't violate it. Um, I think realistically, I think that's probably the most likely outcome because courts tend to like to rule more narrowly if they can to avoid complicated issues. And, you know, to be, I mean, courts are, are very sensitive uh, about so-called jury nullification. It makes them nervous. And so, but they're also very, you know, I mean, there's a lot of very powerful um, precedent on the First Amendment that applies here that I think courts would be uh, reluctant to, you know, to, to seem like they were being dismissive of. So the statutory resolution might be the neatest one and the one that they go if they want to just have an easy resolution of the case. And then, I mean, of course, it's also possible that Mr. Wood could lose. It's possible that they read the statute the way the government wants and says that this isn't protected by the First Amendment. Um, that's another possibility. So, uh, you know, I don't have a clear sense of what's going to happen, um, but there are there are various avenues they could take. How welcoming are federal courts to questions like this? I mean, they they they're, these are judges, right? They they sit on courts. Uh, so f federal judges are, I mean, all, judges of all stripes, but federal judges also are pretty skeptical of any argument sounding in what they consider to be jury nullification. And actually, let me just say kind of as a side note, I'm, I'm using the phrase jury nullification because that is the way this concept is popularly described. It's the way courts describe it. And um, so we're kind of bound to use it. I actually don't like that phrasing, because I think what it what it suggests is that the juries are nullifying the law, right? That they are acting outside of the law, which actually is not the way I view this enterprise at all. This is part and parcel of what the Sixth Amendment jury trial is. This is a lawful exercise of the jury's authority, um, and I think that. So I, I, I prefer the term conscientious acquittal. Um, nevertheless. I mean, this is the way people talk about it, so we're kind of stuck using it. Um, but federal courts are very, very skeptical of it um, because they really have bought into this this myth, I think, uh, that this just not the jury's role. Um, and that's just impossible to reconcile with the founding era and colonial era precedents where there were several celebrated instances of what we would now call jury nullification that informed the framers' minds about why this right was so important. Was William Penn one of those people? He was, exactly, yes. William Penn is this kind of uh, English nobleman who was an early uh, Quaker, uh, the proprietor of Pennsylvania, uh, early uh, advocate for free speech and jury independence. He was convicted for violating the Conventicle Act, um, which, pro which prohibited preaching outside the auspices of the Church of England to more than five people. Of which he clearly was factually guilty. So all the time, right? Exactly. That was <laughs> that was his thing. Um, so he would. So he went to his jury, and uh, so uh, eloquent and passionate was William Penn that he persuaded his jury not to convict him. Um, and the judge was furious at the jurors and essentially told them, "This guy is guilty. Get back in there and return a guilty verdict." And kept them detained without food and water for two days. Basically, imprisoned the jury. 
and they still returned a not guilty verdict. Um, one of the members of those jury, the juries were then jurors were then fined, and one of them, Edward uh, Bushel, sued in the English Court of Chancery, uh, and that court, in the case called Bushel's case, said. You know, you, the jury has the absolute right to sort of issue acquittals. They cannot be punished for that uh, that verdict. And so, this is the celebrated decision, um, uh, sort of establishing the concept of jury independence in the English common law, which was then carried over into the colonial era. Uh, another great example is the 1735 trial of a man named John Peter Zinger, who published, uh, who was who was charged with seditious libel for uh, issuing pamphlets critical of the royal governor of New Jersey. And in that era, the truth was not a defense to seditious libel, so he was clearly factually guilty, and his jury acquitted. Um, and subsequently, juries throughout the colonial uh, era pretty much all but nullified the law of seditious libel, and these were celebrated as de as as decisions in uh, in support not just of jury independence but of free speech. So this was the concept of the jury that the framers had. And if you look at some of the debates around the time of the Constitutional Convention, this is like the one thing they all agree on. There's no dispute about how important the jury trial is for all the other disagreements they have uh, about the Constitution. Um, and so it's really, I mean, I think we you know, need to take a step back and be shocked at the fact that this right, which is the only right mentioned in both the body of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that really was meant to be the cornerstone, the way we do criminal justice in this country, has been all but eliminated. So on the Supreme Court and other federal courts, um, are there some, some justices who are prepared to hear a case like this? Well, a case like this can mean a lot of things. I think that there are certainly members of the Supreme Court that are in general very sympathetic to the right to trial by jury. Um, I think that Justice Gorsuch has written very eloquently about the uh, sanctity and importance of the jury trial uh, in cases involving the relationship between the jury trial and uh, revocation of supervised release. So when people who are on supervised release commit a new offense, to what extent can they be punished for that without a new jury trial? Um, so there, I mean, the jury trial is, I think, a very well-respected right on paper, and in certain limited instances, uh, it does get a lot of serious um, treatment. I think that, for instance, we, we probably are going to see the Supreme Court very soon here affirm a right to a to demand a unanimous jury trial. Uh, there, uh, Louisiana and Oregon have, were for a while the only two states that allowed convictions by non-unanimous juries. Uh, I think that they're about to hold that you have a right to a unanimous jury. But whether that carries over into the sort of area that we're talking about, about a right to inform juries about their role uh, as injustice-preventing institutions, is going to be a di more difficult question. Uh, and I think it's it's hard to say at this point to what extent the federal courts are open to that. Um, which is part of because I think that there's still this this the power of this myth about this very limited role of the jury is is pervasive and so a lot of the preliminary work has to be challenging this and informing not just you know members of the public but members of the judiciary as well um, just how at odds our current system is with the text and history of our constitution. Mm -hmm. 
All right, the case is Michigan v. Wood. Uh, Cato has a legal brief on our website. Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute and works in the Institute's project on criminal justice. You can read that brief and more about conscientious acquittal, so-called jury nullification, at our website, cato.org. Needle exchange programs are a proven means of reducing the spread of HIV and hepatitis among intravenous drug users. They are endorsed by a broad range of medical professionals. Nevertheless, needle exchange programs are legally permitted to operate in only 30 states and the District of Columbia. At the Cato Institute in January, U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams discussed the promise of needle exchange programs. Today in America, over Two million people struggle with an opioid use disorder. And I've heard countless stories of individuals who were initially introduced to opioids via their own prescription or diverted from someone else's prescription. We've been somewhat successful, somewhat I say, in limiting opioid prescriptions. Nationally, they're down 22%, uh, though we still prescribe over 90% of the world's opioids to less than 5% of the world's population. But the fact is, our failure to address the root causes of addiction means that many people have transitioned from prescription opioids to heroin and to fentanyl. Consequently, we've seen a a significant increase in intravenous drug use and uh, related morbidity and mortality, including an explosion of infectious diseases linked to injection drug use. This new and unfortunate reality has impacted families, not only across the country, but uh, likely right here in this very audience. As some of you know, my own baby brother, Philip, is currently serving a 10-year prison sentence for crimes he committed to support his addiction. Philip suffered from untreated anxiety and depression, and he turned to drugs to self-medicate. And uh, I share his story and my family's struggle to show that Americans all across the spectrum suffer from addiction. And that addiction can happen to anyone, even the brother of the United States Surgeon General. We like to think that addiction happens to people who come from bad families. Well, my family managed to raise a Surgeon General of the United States. Uh, I'd like to think that there are a lot of families out there who'd be proud to, to say that about their child. My family also raised a son who is now about an hour away from here right now in prison. And I share my story because I hope to give others the courage to share their stories so that together we can fight stigma. I truly believe that stigma is one of our biggest killers. And unless our loved ones and their families and friends feel comfortable seeking help, we'll never reach those who need it the most. Often people who misuse drugs are in a state of poor mental and physical health, and they're hesitant to seek treatment due to the stigma of addiction. I didn't know that my brother was using injection drugs until he was actually incarcerated. Uh, But there's a proven biological component to addiction. It is not uh, a matter of simply having the willpower to say no. I'll put it another way. There's no one in America who woke up this morning and said, today I'm going to become addicted to drugs. Opioid addiction can occur very quickly, often after just a few uses. 
Individuals who stop can experience extremely uncomfortable withdrawal symptoms. So it's important for us to understand today, in the context of the conversation we're having, that instead of using to get high, most chronic IV drug users are seeking to alleviate the sickness that comes with extreme withdrawal. Opioid addiction can be extremely difficult to defeat, again, as uh, I can attest to by witnessing my own brother's uh, challenges. But the fact is recovery is possible with the right support and resources. And at its core, that's what our discussion today is all about, recognizing that addiction is a disease, that it can afflict and affect any person, any family, any community, and that, as with other diseases, we have evidence-based treatments that can help people recover. But due to stigma, many of our most effective treatments are being underutilized. And uh, it's interesting. We were having a conversation before I came in about uh, marijuana use in this country. Uh, 33 states in the District of Columbia have legalized marijuana use. That means that it's easier to get a joint in most parts of the United States than what it is to get a clean syringe if you're someone with, uh, with a substance use disorder. Uh, I want to talk about syringe service programs because they're one of those underutilized treatments. Syringe service programs are scientifically proven to improve and to save lives, whether it's in urban Washington, D.C. or rural Scott County, Indiana. Opioid addiction is so powerful, people who use drugs will often inject wherever they can and with whatever needles they can. Uh, as part of my experience in Scott County, we actually sat down with many people who, uh, who inject drugs. And I've spoken to uh, IV drug injectors who report using the same needle over and over again until it literally breaks off in their vein. Think about that. Think about a needle breaking off in your arm while you're injecting. By facilitating sterile syringe access and disposal, SSPs, which is how I'll abbreviate syringe service programs, not only reduce costly and potentially deadly medical complications such as skin abscesses and endocarditis, but importantly, they connect people who inject drugs with mental health and addiction treatment services such as medication-assisted treatment or MAT so they can break a vicious cycle. And uh, you'll hear different terminologies, different words used today. We were having a discussion, Dr. Singer and I, before we came back about uh, whether we should call them needle exchanges or whether we should call them syringe service programs. I will tell you that I utilize the term syringe service programs because uh, from my standpoint, it's providing so much more than the exchange of needles. Uh, we have a lot of science behind the fact that that needle exchange uh, component is important for preventing the spread of infectious diseases, but there's an array of services that are provided. Participants of syringe service programs, comprehensive syringe service programs, are five times more likely to enter drug treatment and three and a half times more likely to cease injecting compared to those who don't use syringe service programs. In decades of research, and this is important to hear, decades of research show that syringe service programs do not increase crime or drug consumption and are, in fact, cost saving. Cost for an HIV case, a single HIV case, lifetime cost is estimated in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, hepatitis cases, again, can easily be well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars if you get someone who ends up with cirrhosis and needs a liver transplant. Providing that 10-cent needle 
and that connection to other services, uh, it, it has been proven time and time again to be cost-saving. SSPs also, as I mentioned, play a critical role in reducing infectious disease outbreaks that are often associated with the opioid epidemic, uh, such as HIV and hepatitis. From 2016 to uh, from 2010 to 2016, there's been a three-and-a-half-fold increase in reported cases of hepatitis C, coincident with the evolution of the opioid epidemic, and the majority of those new cases have been linked to injection drug use. SSPs are associated with a 50% decline in the risk of HIV and hepatitis C transmission, and when linked to substance use treatment, they prevent even more infections. Nearly one in 10 HIV infections in the United States is linked to injection drug use. That's why syringe service programs are a strategic part of HHS's Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative, the nation's 10-year plan to reduce HIV infections in the United States by 75% in five years and by 90% in, uh, by 2030. Scientific research is the time-honored key to objective knowledge. In the past, it was funded pluralistically, but today, certain portions of the market for knowledge are dominated by a single buyer, namely the government. This is especially true in the research fields that impinge on the regulatory sphere, such as pollution and climate change. As discussed in Scientocracy, the tangled web of public science and public policy, science today is in systematic trouble. At the Cato Institute in December, Terence Keeley, a co-editor of the book, discussed the findings. What Pat has described is science under pressure. More than half of all published findings are false. More than half of all papers in psychology cannot be reproduced. And there seems to be the natural selection of bad science. What is the process of that natural selection? And uh, I want to bring in another author, Daniel Saravitz of Arizona State University, who coined a very interesting expression. He said, it's technology that keeps science honest. And his thesis, and of course I completely agree with it since I've written about this so extensively, is that when after the Second World War in this country, the United States went from being a country that was stunningly laissez-faire in science, where the government funded no science that was meant to compensate for so-called market failure. It funded geopolitical science, a very small amount, but basically science was less than the private sector. Under those circumstances, which right up until actually nearly 1950, scientists reported to people who wanted results that could be tested. They either reported to the chief executive of a company whose aeroplanes should not fall out of the sky, they reported to the chief executive of American Heart Foundation, who actually wanted data that people got better with this drug or that. They reported to entities that were testing the science in terms of technology. But then, with the creation of the National Science Foundation in 1950 and the continuation of the earlier activities in the National Institutes of Health, the government crowded out huge sections of private funding of science and the government became a near monolithic, near monopolistic employer of scientists, which was a huge change. Universities went from being essentially teaching institutions to research institutions. It was a major 
development in American society and culture. And scientists no longer were tested by technology, or at least a large number are not, they were tested by peer review. The question, therefore, was if you submitted a grant to a peer review panel, was that what the peer review panel wanted to read? If you submitted a paper to a journal, was that what the paper, the referees of the journal, wanted to read? If you wanted to get promotion in your university, were you saying the sort of things that people wanted to read? When science was being kept honest by scientists being tested against technology, they were forced to be honest. But when you're being judged by peer review, and when, as Pat has explained so well, so much of science is not hard, but soft and depends upon statistics. This is where the John Ioannidis stuff came in, how you can manipulate statistics to produce the majority of papers giving you false results. Then the incentives to researchers to manipulate, manipulate is too strong a word, to select the data that meets the requirements of peer review become very, very strong. And the whole thing becomes self-fulfilling because natural selection of bad science. These junior scientists are trained to meet the needs of the peer reviewers. Eventually themselves have become peer reviewers and so the whole thing carries on. In the 19th century, Planck said that science advances funeral by funeral. The assumption being that old scientists are always bound to paradigms which are often out of date, but as they die, so paradigms can shift relatively easily. But what we have when so much science is funded by the government, which by the way, there's no economic evidence that that does anything at all for the economy. In fact, it doesn't do anything for the economy. It just crowds out the private funding. When you create a single near monopolistic funder, which has one particular paradigm that has captured the group of funders. And in the book, for example, we talk about how nutrition research was absolutely captured under Ansel Keys by a group of people, all of whom were determined that the only stories they were going to perpetuate were those that fat was bad and carbohydrate was good. Then you get a natural selection of bad science. And so our argument is twofold. First, that science is facing not just a reproducibility crisis, but actually a credibility crisis. You pick up the New York Times and today coffee's bad for you and tomorrow coffee's good for you. This is bad for science, it doesn't look good, but it comes from a culture that government has hugely reinforced of scientists not being tested by technology, but being tested by peer review, which encourages an unhealthy culture. Why don't NATO members spend more on their own defense? Why does the United States end up shouldering so much of that burden? In his new book, NATO, The Dangerous Dinosaur, Cato's Ted Galen Carpenter, details how these questions are only part of the problem. He discussed the book at the Cato Institute in October. Whenever an author of a policy book puts out a new book, you hope that it's uh, relevant and timely. Well, I would say uh, I lucked out a great deal on this one because uh, we have an ongoing crisis within NATO even as I speak with the United States uh, relationship with Turkey and especially regarding Turkey's uh, military incursion into Northern Syria. 
we have uh, the latest example of an uh, alliance in crisis. It's not often that you find one NATO member imposing severe economic sanctions on another and having the President of the United States threatening to destroy the economy of that fellow NATO member. But what we see with Turkey and its actions in Syria is symptomatic of several problems afflicting NATO at the moment. Now, most discussions of NATO focus on the burden-sharing issue. Is Europe doing enough for its own defense? Are the European members of NATO uh, contributing sufficiently to the collective defense effort? Are they spending enough on their own defense in particular? Well, I believe that most of the serious problems afflicting NATO now go well beyond those traditional burden-sharing complaints. And the burden-sharing aspect has been around for a very long time, almost since the beginning of NATO. After all, we had John Foster Dulles in late 1953 warning the European allies that if they didn't do more for their own defense, if they didn't support the collective defense effort better, then the United States might have to conduct a, quote, agonizing reappraisal of its European security commitments. More recently, Secretary of Defense Harold Brown under uh, President Bill Clinton gave the NATO allies a very blunt warning that the United States was getting tired of their free riding, of their lack of a commitment to the collective defense effort. Two secretaries of defense under Barack Obama Robert Gates and Chuck Hagel made similar statements in uh, meetings with the NATO allies. So the burden sharing issue is a very familiar one, frankly, a tired one. What Donald Trump did was simply carry on that legacy of US complaints, as usual in a less diplomatic manner than his predecessors. But in terms of substance, there wasn't much new in terms of that aspect of his uh, indictment of NATO. But as I said, I think there are newer, more serious problems uh, bedeviling the alliance. And th those problems really do threaten the viability of NATO going forward. One is the rising authoritarianism among NATO members. That's certainly the most advanced with regard to Turkey, which is now little more than a thinly disguised dictatorship under President Erdogan. But you see similar developments taking place in other NATO members, especially Hungary and Poland. And we're beginning to see some of those same developments take place in Italy and a number of other NATO powers. Another problem afflicting NATO are increasingly acute policy disagreements among members. We see that with a number of issues, but two really stand out. One is policy toward Iran. 
where the Trump administration uh, basically reversed course uh, from what the Obama administration had been doing and intensified the confrontation with Tehran. The European members of NATO have made it very clear that they are not willing to go along with that policy. And indeed, when the United States uh, imposed new economic sanctions on Tehran, its European allies uh, went out of their way to try to shield Iran from the main effects of those new sanctions, and of course, to protect some of their own businesses, which were in danger of uh, being affected by those sanctions. But it's clear the European members of NATO are not on board for a highly confrontational policy toward Iran. And I'm not, uh, I, I certainly don't believe that that's going to change at any point in the near future. There are also rising disagreements about policy toward Russia. And following the uh, Russian seizure of Crimea, you had a fair degree of policy harmony among the NATO members, that action had to be taken, that uh, the imposition of sanctions was appropriate. But European enthusiasm for those sanctions has been waning almost ever since they were imposed. And now you see European leaders openly questioning the efficacy of those sanctions and expressing the desire to have them eased and eventually phased out to try to restore a more uh, harmonious relationship with Moscow. That policy disagreement is likely to get worse, not better, in the coming months and years. And then there is the rising European sentiment for neutrality. I had an article in the Washington Post a few weeks ago which went into some detail about that. And it focused on a recent poll that uh, was taken by the European Council on Foreign Relations, which is a thoroughly establishment organization. And it confirms the growing sentiment for neutrality in Europe. The survey covered some 60,000 people in 14 European Union countries. And even with regard to NATO's mission of standing up to Russia, that neutralist sentiment was evident. When asked whose side should your country take in a conflict between the United States and Russia, the majority of respondents in all 14 EU countries said neither. Now, the temptation has been to blame Donald Trump for all of this. But that erosion of NATO solidarity was well underway before Trump arrived on the scene. And it applied even to NATO's core mission of collective defense. The results of a 2015 Pew Research survey of eight NATO countries showed that Again, this sentiment was on the rise before 
the prospect of a Donald Trump presidency was considered even uh, the, the most remote prospect. The Pew poll showed that among Europeans, a median of 49% of respondents thought their country should not defend an ally. Now that's a response that shows a lack of commitment to collective defense, the core of NATO's mission. Indeed, France, Italy, and Germany all had majorities opposed to fulfilling their country's commitment under Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty to consider an attack on any NATO member as an attack on all. So that's the heart and soul of NATO. And yet, majority of respondents rejected that. The more recent poll by the Council, uh, European Council on Foreign Relations really shows the extent of neutralist sentiment, how much it is built. In France, only 16% would back the United States in a conflict against Russia. 63% opt for neutrality. In Italy, it's 17% versus 65%. And in Germany, 12% versus 70%. And the results are similar in uh, NATO's newer East European members, despite their greater exposure to Russian pressure and potential aggression. Attitudes are no better, no pro, be, more pro-US regarding other foreign policy controversies than it is with regard to a US conflict with Russia. When asked which side should your country take in a conflict between the United States and China, the results were lopsided against backing America. Now, to give you just a, a few examples of that, in uh, the Czech Republic, only 20% were willing to back the United States. In Romania, it was 17%, 13% in Hungary. And if you think it's better with regard to America's traditional NATO powers in East in Western Europe, think again. The results were as bad or worse. Only 18% of French respondents, 15% of Italians, and 10% of Germans chose solidarity with the United States. California may be an object lesson in how not to tackle poverty, a massive housing crisis, homelessness, and poor educational outcomes coexist with vibrant industry and vast wealth. At a Cato Institute event in California, Cato's Michael Tanner discussed the Institute's project on poverty in California. And one of our donors uh, read that book and said to me, uh, to us, you know, why don't you come out to California and talk about these issues because this is really a laboratory for how not to deal with poverty. Uh, we took a look at it and found that we do have a kind of a target-rich environment here. Uh, I mean, this is a state, after all, that has a substantial economic growth, that has pockets of enormous wealth, that has extensive social welfare programs, and yet you have the highest poverty rate in the nation. 
which would suggest something is going wrong. You are a state that in many ways has a public policy dedicated to the idea of redistribution of wealth, and yet you are the fourth in the country in terms of inequality of wealth. Now, in terms of inequality generally, you know, if that's sort of the natural outcome of people's talents and the market and stuff like that, Cato's has really very little problem with that. But too often we find that those that inequality is imposed by the government or brought about by bad government policies. And for those of you who have read my book or are about to read my book or really should read my book, <laughs> uh, you'll know that I look at a number of areas in there that I think the government has simply gotten wrong. Uh, criminal justice policies, uh, our education system, which is more dedicated to protecting teachers and administrators than to helping parents and children. Uh, the housing situation, which of course everybody's familiar with here in California, uh, what we call financial inclusion or the need to help poor people save, uh, and finally regressive regulation that sort of locks the poor out of participating in an otherwise growing economy. And we find that in terms of California, you are getting almost every one of these policies wrong. Uh, you can look at your criminal justice system. And yes, there's been some reforms, and there has been some reduction in terms of the number of people in prison. But we still find that there's overcriminalization is still a big issue in the state. Far too many things are crimes here that shouldn't be crimes. Uh, you're locking up people for things like personal drug use rather than dealing with things like breaking into cars. <laughs> um, actually, it's the number one crime in San Francisco and has less than a 2% clearance rate. So, uh, so that is a, is a major issue. Uh, fines and fees, which fall primarily on lower-income people. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody ever read the Ferguson report about the cycle in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, that led to many of the problems there. Uh, but the same thing goes on here. Somebody gets picked up for having a taillight out, and they get a fine that they can't pay. So then they lose their insurance and their license, and then they can't go to work, and then the whole thing uh, escalates out of control and things like that. Uh, criminal records. Uh, if you have a criminal record, you can't get many jobs or many licenses for professions and so on. Uh, it, it seems absurd to me that people that they let out of prison to fight the wildfires here in California can't become firemen because they have a criminal record. Um, I, I spoke to a gentleman uh, in Fresno not too long ago who uh, had just gotten his master's degree in social work. Uh, he just got out of prison, he got educated while he was in prison, went on, got his uh, master's degree in social work. He can't be a social worker because he has a criminal record, uh, and so on. We, we, uh, and we think that some of the reforms that you have made in terms of eliminating cash bail and so on that would help the poor, uh, there's a backlash going on and we actually expect efforts to repeal many of those, uh, and we think those are going to be bad uh, ideas. In terms of education, California lags uh, behind the, the rest of the country in many ways. You spend uh, among the top spending and per pupil uh, states in the union, and yet you have uh, outcomes that are far worse than the national average, uh, both in math and reading. Uh, you have, and you have very little competition and very little innovation in the education system because you have very little parental choice. Uh, you have no school voucher or scholarship tax credit program. Even your charter school programs are very limited, heavily regulated, and there's efforts to impose more regulations or a moratorium on them uh, altogether, which we think would be a very bad idea. Ah, everybody perks up around here when I talk about the housing crisis and homelessness. We know that that's a huge problem. Um, 
69% of California's homeless population is living on the street. 47% uh, of all unsheltered homeless people in the United States uh, live in California, reside in California. Uh, you know, this, this, is, this is obviously a major problem. About a quarter of all homeless people, period, in the United States live uh, in California. And there's a variety of reasons for this. We know that about a third of all the homeless people in California are the what you consider sort of traditionally homeless. These are people with mental illness. They have drug and alcohol problems. They are the people you define kind of homeless everywhere in the country. But about two-thirds are people who have largely fallen to the street because if you lose your low-income, your low-cost apartments, you simply can't find any place else to live because there's such a lack of affordable housing in the state. Uh, and we find there's a lot of reasons why there's no affordable housing in the state or no low-cost housing in the state. Uh, among them, uh, zoning regulations. Uh, it's actually 50 to 75 percent, according to different studies. I think it's probably about two-thirds of all developed land is zoned solely for single-family housing. You can't build multifamily housing or, or uh, high-density units uh, in most of the state. Uh, local fees and permitting codes and regulations can add 6 to 18% to construction costs. In many areas of the state, the cost of the fees and permitting is more than the cost of the land. Uh, approval time drags on. You have uh, secondary review here rather than being buy right. It just drags on essentially forever and try to get a new project approved. And finally, the California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA, uh, pretty much allows anybody anywhere in the state to stop almost any project anywhere in the state uh, threatening lawsuits. It has been increasingly, I've been told by politicians on both sides of the aisle, weaponized and essentially used by special interest groups, uh, much the way you know, we can talk to the president of the Ukraine and suggest that you know, mighty nice uh, military aid you have there, it'd be a shame if anything happened to it. Uh, they treat uh, housing projects much the same way here. Uh, we, you know, we could file a secret suit unless you hire our construction crew, which is going to want a $50 an hour to, to work for you type of things here. It goes on there. Uh, financial inclusion. Uh, most poor people don't have uh, any savings, which is not a surprise. That's why they're poor. But we do know that you don't get out of poverty by spending more money. You get out of poverty by saving your money, right? We want to encourage people to save and, and uh, to build up money. And yet, uh, on CalWORKS, if you have more than $2,250, you lose your benefits. So think of what that means. Essentially, you get your welfare check, and if you go down to the store and buy the latest running shoes, hey, that's cool. You know, some new basketball shoes, things like that. We think that's fine. Spend every penny you got. But if you put any of that money in a 529 account so your kids can go to school someday, you know, to a better school, we're going to take away your benefits. Seems to me like we got that sort of exactly wrong. And then finally, there's a whole problem of regressive regulation. You know, people worry about regulations all across the board and how they hurt business and so on. I particularly worry about how these regulations hurt the poor. Uh, things like occupational licensing laws, um, occupational zoning, uh, childcare regulations that makes it you know, difficult for poor people to afford childcare. And if you're dealing in a lot of cases with single mothers and so on, it's very hard uh, for them to find uh, affordable childcare keep people out of the labor force. Uh, minimum wage and prevailing wage laws are so high that they lock that people out of that first step on the wrong, first rung on the ladder out of poverty. They can't get that first job. Uh, environmental regulations that drive up utility costs, which on top of housing costs can keep uh, poor people from being able to find, uh, find shelter. Uh, just give you one example here, occupational licensing. Uh, you have the third 
strictest requirements in the nation. 61% of all jobs for low-income people require you to get the government's permission to practice your profession. And getting that permission can often be time-consuming. It can take you weeks or months or even years to complete the coursework for that. It can be expensive. You have to buy books. You have to pay for classes. You have to pay for the testing. Uh, it, it can be extremely difficult. And if you have a criminal record, as I mentioned earlier, you're not eligible for getting licenses in many, many cases. So it actually prevents people from getting, getting ahead. It costs about 200,000 jobs, we estimate, and about $22 billion in misallocated resources that might be better, uh, better used in other ways to create jobs or serve the, serve the poor. So what are we going to do about it? Well, that's where Cato comes in, and our Cato project on uh, poverty and inequality in California. Cato has decades of expertise on these subjects. We have been studying issues like regressive regulation and criminal justice reform and education reform for years. We have, you know, we have some of the best people, the best scholars in the world working at Cato on these issues. And we have access to other scholars from around the country who are dealing with these sorts of, these sorts of issues. And we can tap into that expertise, but we also don't want to simply parachute into California uh, a couple of years from now and say, hey, we figured it all out. We're from Washington and we're here to help. <laughs> so we want to actually take the expertise we've developed and apply it specifically to California and specifically to the problems you're facing here and to learn from you how you think we can best utilize that expertise and what we can do better and what you guys can do better, how we can help you uh, improve. We have been coming to California. We have been talking to the people on the front lines who are dealing with these issues, political people, of course, from both parties, uh, but also dealing with the activists, the people who are dealing with this on the streets, the people who are wrestling with this, and the people who are suffering from this, the people who are actually homeless, the people who are actually finding tough to getting a job, the people who are out of work. We're trying to talk to all, all of these folks. The status of free speech and academic freedom in the nation's colleges and universities has become an explosive issue. Reports of disruptions and disinvitations of speakers and a host of new speech-inhibiting policies instituted by campus bureaucrats are now commonplace. In a new book from the Cato Institute, Free Speech and Liberal Education, A Plea for Intellectual Diversity and Tolerance, author Donald Downs dissects the nature, extent, and causes of speech suppression. Free Speech and Liberal Education is available now from online retailers nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.